Well, we're continuing with our look at the incarnation of Jesus. And this morning we're going to, to do that through the covenants of Scripture. Uh, the, the Bible actually contains a, a large number of covenants, a handful of major covenants that affect um, all humanity to one degree or another. Uh, what is a covenant? Simply put, a covenant is a created, binding, and obligatory relationship. So marriage is a, a perfect example of a covenant. Uh, marriage is a created, not a natural relationship. We're not born married. We have to become married. It's binding on both husband and wife, not just in a legal sense, but more importantly, morally and personally. And marriage is an obligatory relationship. Husband and wife both have obligations within that relationship. Uh, on the other hand, the opposite of that would be the relationship between a parent and child. It's not a covenant simply because it's not a created relationship. It's a natural relationship. So they're very different. Um, as we review the, the major covenants of Scripture this morning, I want you to think of these as blueprints. A home is going to have multiple pages of blueprints, each which describes a different aspect of what's happening. The architect, is, as he creates the, the drawing, has, his, has the finished product in his mind. And if he's highly talented, very creative, very skilled, he can visualize it in his head. But those who use blueprints and refer to them can't begin to comprehend what the fullness is going to be. Uh, I'm, I'm friends with a, a man in town who's a builder, Ken Dabrico. Uh, he and I are involved in the jail ministry together. And I dropped in on him on Friday at a, at a job site. He, his company is remodeling the, uh, used to be a veterinary supply place at the corner of Omaha and 13th. And I don't know what's going in there, but Ken's company is doing the remodeling. So I dropped in and it's just empty on the inside except for some framing. And you can pray for him. They've got a framing inspection tomorrow. Uh, but he took me over. I was talking to this about him, and he said, oh, come and look. And he showed me the, the framing blueprint. And he has not seen an artist's rendering of what the finished building will be. All he's got is the blueprints. Ken's a very skilled builder. He's been doing this a long time. He can look at the blueprints and imagine the room, but he can't imagine how it's going to be painted, how it's going to be decorated. He can't imagine the furniture, all of those things. Only when the home is finished or the building is finished can we appreciate what the architect had in mind. So let's pray, and we're going to review those covenants, and then I will show you how they relate to Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is true. We know that it is inerrant and infallible. We know that it is sufficient. We know, Lord, that by the very nature of your word being spoken by you, breathed out by you, all scripture is inspired as literally all scripture is God-breathed. Because of that, your word obligates us to faith and submission, faith and obedience. And so I ask that you would help us do that this morning. Help us to learn. Open our eyes to the things that you have given us plainly in Scripture, but have to be uncovered and understood. 
Do that, Lord, for your glory, and that we would be blessed in our knowledge of you. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So you can probably see on the screen behind me there are half a dozen or so covenants. Uh, The covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Israel, the covenant with David, and the new covenant. Uh, We begin with the covenant with Adam, and it's simply stated in Genesis chapter (coughs) 2. Yahweh took the man, Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to keep it, cultivate it, and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may surely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for in the day you eat of it you will die. As head of the human race, Adam did what affected all of us, uh, or what Adam did affected all of his descendants. He acted on behalf of us. Had Adam obeyed, had Adam obeyed and eaten of the tree of life, we wouldn't be here right now. But Adam disobeyed. Because he disobeyed, we suffer the consequences of his sin, Romans 5.12 says, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. He represented us. Uh, It was a very sad state of affairs. We see the effects of the fall. As soon as Adam and Eve eat, or as soon as Adam eats, their eyes are opened. Eve was spiritually connected to Adam as a descendant of Adam, if you will. She was made from him. So his sin caused her nature to fall. They raised their children and then found out somehow that the oldest had killed the next one, murdered him, an unthinkable crime. They died. Adam had to perhaps lay some more of his children to rest and perhaps to bury Eve or perhaps Eve buried Adam, but they saw the effects of sin. Well, what about Christ and and God's relationship or God's covenant with Adam? Well, God's covenant with Adam is a blueprint. And that blueprint reveals that there will be another Adam, a last Adam, not a second Adam. Remember, I, I mentioned last week, the Bible says that there was a first man and a second man of Adam and Jesus, but You've got the first Adam and the last Adam. It's because there's not the first Adam and the second Adam and the third Adam and the fourth Adam. There's only the first and the last. Uh, Jesus, as I said again last week, did not come to depose Adam as the head of the fallen human race. He came to raise up a new race. If we want to think of mankind as homo sapiens, which means thinking man or reasoning man, Life in Christ, humanity in Christ is homo spiritualis, spiritual man. We're born again in Jesus. All who are in Adam die, all who are in Christ live. And we have the very promise of that coming through the promise of the woman's seed who will crush the serpent's head and of the fact that God takes skins from the animal. He has to kill an animal and clothe Adam and Eve in them. The next covenant we come to is also in Genesis chapter 9. It's God's covenant with Noah. In the aftermath of the flood, God spoke to Noah, beginning at verse 8, and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you, 
and with your seed after you and with every creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the field or every beast of the earth. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood and there shall never again be a flood of water to destroy the earth. Then God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I am giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I put my bow in the cloud, the rainbow, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. Noah was born about a thousand years after Adam. Adam had only been dead uh, a few years when Noah was born. When Noah was born, uh, uh, Seth was still alive. Several of Adam's offspring were still alive. But with the exception of Noah and I think his wife, Genesis 6.5 says, every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. A thousand years, and they'd forgotten God. Animal life on the earth had become filled with violence as well. Verses 11.12 says the earth was filled with violence. If you've seen the documentary Genesis's History, there's a point where they go to a, a, a natural history museum and they look at some really fearsome dinosaur fossils with foot-long teeth and six-inch long claws. The earth was filled with violence. The flood was not only necessary to deal with human sin, it was the, there to deal with the violence of the animal kingdom that we would not have been able to survive and which animals were not saved on the ark. Only the animals, the only animals on the ark were those that God chose to be saved. So I think that God cleared nature as well. After the flood, Noah built an altar and worshiped Yahweh and Yahweh established this covenant with him. So what I want to point out to you is that God's covenant with Adam was a covenant of works. It was a mutual covenant. There was something for Adam to do he didn't do it. Actually, there was something for Adam not to do, and he did it. Personally, I find that the negative, the prohibitions are easier than the positive, the prescriptions. It's always easier when God says, don't do this, than when he says, do that, because when he says, do that, we have to do it to his perfect standards. So if I just leave it alone, I'm good. But if I have to do something, I have to meet his standards, which is hard. But God's covenant with Noah was a covenant of grace. It's not a mutual covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. God alone makes it. There is literally nothing for humanity to do to keep this covenant. It's not even necessary. This, this, it makes me uneasy to even say this, but it's not even necessary to believe. God has simply said, I will never again destroy all life on earth through a flood of water. And he won't. The next time's by fire. It's not by water. But he won't do that. He won't do that. We have to trust that God is going to keep that covenant. And, of course, it's impossible to please God apart from faith. And those who don't believe God's promise face his judgment, but not through a worldwide flood. There's a promise he has made. So what about Christ and God's covenant with Noah? Well, God's covenant with Noah is a blueprint for the sovereign, merciful rescue of God's people through judgment. 
or from judgment through an arc of his design and choosing. Of course, he had Noah build the ark, which was four or 500 feet long and 70 feet tall and 45 or 50 feet wide. The reproduction in, in uh, Kentucky is, is pretty close. It follows the dimensions, at least. We don't know the other details. They kind of guessed at those. But the second ark for eternal life would be Christ. It would be Jesus himself. One of the common phrases we see in the New Testament are the words, in Christ. We have been placed in Christ. We have been born again in Christ. We are adopted to the, by the Father through Christ, in Christ, so that in Christ Jesus we receive everything and we inherit all things. So the issue really isn't how do you have eternal life, how do you get free from sin, how do you get forgiven, how do you have good relationships, how do you remake your mind, how do you redo your heart. The question is how do you get into Christ because if you get into Christ everything else comes with him. The Lord has mercifully made it simple for us and he places us in Christ by his grace through our faith in Jesus and even that faith is God's gift to us. The third covenant we come to is in Genesis 15. You notice that the first three of these are early in the book of Genesis because they're so foundational. It really involves all of Genesis 15, but I'll just read verses 3 through 6. This is God's covenant with Abraham. And Abraham's, Abram said, Since you have given no seed to me, no children, behold, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. Then he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Like the covenant with Noah, God's covenant with Abraham is a covenant of grace, not of works. If I read all the way through the chapter, you would see this, this odd episode toward the end where Abraham, God commands Abraham to take a number of different animals, kill them, cut them in half, separate the pieces, and then he causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham, and God alone passes through the middle of them which seems very strange to us, but it's an ancient form of covenant. If Dakota and I were going to form a covenant that way, we would take an animal, we would kill it, we would split it in two, separate the halves, then he and I would walk through that middle together. And it, it says we're bound together by this, we're united by this, we are both constrained by this and accountable for it. Well, God causes Abraham to fall asleep, and God alone walks through the animals, because God alone is going to keep this promise. But Abraham believed God, which is good. That, that's just good. It's a little promise. It's really a little promise. You've got this, this little old couple. Abraham is between 75 and 85. Sarah's 10 years younger. They just don't have children. That's, that's all. That's all. It's not that big a deal. There are many people who don't have children. Some have many children. Some have very few. Some have none. It's just this little thing on their hearts. And what Abraham is believing isn't this full scope of what that covenant would ultimately be. What Abraham is believing is that he and Sarah would have a child by God's mercy. 
But when he believed God, God said, you know what? You're righteous now. You're righteous now. A little bit of faith in a tiny little promise pleased God. And he justified Abraham. Now, Abraham received far more than a son through the covenant. He receives eternal life when he's justified. God's promise that he would have innumerable descendants is certainly fulfilled physically through his children, not only the people of Israel, but the sons of Ishmael. And Abraham had other children through Keturah after Sarah died. But Abraham has countless descendants spiritually. Galatians 6-7 says, Know that those who are of faith those are sons of Abraham. So if the Lord granted Abraham to come back right now and saw us worshiping Yahweh, his God, he would count us as grandchildren. Well, what about Jesus and God's covenant with Abraham? Well, God's covenant with Abraham is a blueprint for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace alone means no, no merit. We don't deserve it. We don't, we don't earn it. We don't have a right to it. It's a gift. It's a gift. Faith alone means that we don't take our faith and join good works to it. You know... God wants to save and does save through, by grace and through faith. What if theoretically, just theoretically, a person could perfectly keep the law of God? He would not give them eternal life on that basis. Because eternal life must come by grace. It must come as a gift. So even if somebody was able to keep every law in Scripture perfectly from the moment of birth to the moment of death, God would not grant them eternal life based on that. He doesn't give us Jesus because we can't keep the law. We can't keep the law because he wanted to give us Jesus. We have to think about it from a theocentric point of view, a God-centric point of view, not a man-centric point of view. So by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not the church, not a pastor, not a priest, not a minister, not a cleric, not a vicar, not a pope, not a cardinal, not a monsignor, not a bishop, not an archbishop, none of that. God is personally, intimately involved with the salvation of his people. And to say I need a church, I need a pastor, I need a minister, I need a priest, I need this, I need that, is, is really saying God can't be trusted to keep the most precious promises he has made to manifest his love to sinners. We can keep his promise, or he can keep his promise, and we can trust in his promise. We come to God's covenant with Israel. It's found in the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. If you don't mind, I won't read all of that this morning. Exodus 24, verse 3, though, summarizes, summarizes it. it. In a sense, it's the signature line of, of 
the covenant. If you've ever bought a house, if you've ever bought a car, uh, gotten a credit card, if you've done anything like that, you have to sign. You have to give a promise to follow the terms of that contract, of that covenant. Well, Exodus 24, 3, then Moses came and recounted to the people of Israel all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. They signed it. They signed it. They raised their right hands and took a pledge. They crossed their heart. They put their hands, well, there wasn't a Bible, but they put their hands on something and swore. So the covenant with Israel is like God's covenant with Adam. It's a covenant of works. It's not a covenant of grace. They have a part to play. It's a mutual covenant. Yahweh has obligations and Israel has obligations to fulfill. Toward the end of the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, God, uh, you've got the penalty clause. You've got the blessings if you actually observe the covenant. And then there's the the curses for disobeying the covenant, for violating the covenant. And what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 30 is, is two really remarkable things. First of all, the covenant itself, the law itself, said that they were going to violate the law. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 1 says, So it will be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, when all these things have come upon you. Which means God doesn't say, if these things come upon you, if you disobey me, and if I have to pour out the curses on you. He says, when, when. That's the first part that's really remarkable. The second part that's remarkable is in verse 6. He talks about them earlier before than, earlier than verse 6. He talks about them returning with their hearts and coming back to the terms of the covenant and understanding the law and all of that. But then he says in verse 6, Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your children to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So the, the old covenant, the covenant with Israel, includes a promise pointing to the new covenant. That's the circumcision of the heart. It's the new nature. It's not just forgiveness of sins. It's the surgical removal of the old person, which drives us to sin so that we would obey. Well, what about Jesus and God's covenant with Israel? Well, unlike the people of Israel, Jesus came to keep the law, not to break it, but to fulfill it, he said. And he kept it perfectly. Hebrews 4 says that he was without sin. Jesus elevated all of the scriptures and most specifically the law of God throughout his life and ministry. Even following his resurrection, instead of unhitching his disciples from the Old Testament, which is what Andy Stanley says he did, it says in Matthew 24, 45, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Why would you open their minds to understand the scriptures you're unhitching from them well it's because he wasn't unhitching he was fulfilling the entire scope of jesus life and ministry was carried out according to the word of god now why would god make a covenant with israel if he knew that 
that they would never keep it and that they would violate every provision in it. It's kind of unfair if you think about it from a human point of view. God's setting them up for failure. God's saying, I know that there's not a a snowball's chance in Sedona, Arizona, that you're going to keep this, but I'm going to make you sign it anyway so that I can punish you when you fail. What it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, is that no one is justified by works of the law. Instead, the law is given to reveal sin, to manifest sin. The law is a diagnostic tool. It's like an x-ray or an MRI for your soul. In Romans 7, Paul says, I, I didn't know what it was to covet until the law said you shall not covet and then coveting was awakened in me and all I wanted to do was covet the problem was not that the law took an innocent person and inserted this temptation to this new sin the problem for Paul was that the law uncovered something that had been buried and then he realized what it was and that it had a name and being a sinner by nature instead of going Oh, I can't believe that. Get it out. He begins to enjoy it. He says, oh, there's something else for me here. And he reveals the deadness of his own soul. Romans 8, on the other hand, says what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, through our flesh. The problem with the law, the weakness of the law is that we can't carry it out. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's us, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, which means according to faith, trusting in God. The next covenant we come to jumps forward a little bit into 2 Samuel chapter 7. God had rejected Saul as being king. He had chosen David. David had built a house. A number of things had taken place in his life. And then God sent Nathan the prophet to him. And there's a long conversation in 2 Samuel 7. The whole thing is really rich. But in verses 12 and 13, it really kind of summarizes this covenant with David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, which is a a, a nice way of saying when you're dead, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The immediate immediate fulfillment of that is Solomon. Solomon becomes the next king after David. It's Solomon whose kingdom is established by God, who builds the temple for God. But the permanent eternal fulfillment of this is through the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus who establishes the kingdom. It's the Lord Jesus who builds the house, the, the temple of God, the church, and whose throne is established forever. As with the covenants of, uh, with Noah and with Abraham, this is a covenant of grace, not works. There's nothing David has to do to bring this about. There's nothing Solomon has to do. 
There's nothing any of God's people have to do for God to keep this promise. It's also a unilateral covenant. God alone makes it. God alone is responsible for filling it. He would raise up an eternal king, a last king, from the line of David. Well, what about Jesus and God's covenant with David? Well, Jesus is recognized as the king of Israel when he's just an infant. The Magi come from the east and they come to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Nathaniel recognized Jesus as king at the very outset of his ministry. Jesus was welcomed into Palm Sunday at the end of his earthly ministry as the king of Israel. Jesus was mockingly called king by the Roman soldiers <coughs> who flogged him, by Pontius Pilate who brings him out after he's been beaten and displays him to the Jews and says, Behold your king. By the way, the Jews say, we have no king but Caesar. The Jewish leaders mockingly call Jesus king as he hangs dying on the cross. Let the king of Israel come down and save himself. And of course, Pilate put a sign above his head on the cross saying, uh, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. But Jesus is king of the nations. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. On the day of judgment, we just saw in Matthew 25, he will condemn the wicked to hell and welcome the righteous to eternal life as king. As king. It's, it's interesting. There, there are times when, I don't know if you do this, but there are times that I'm, I'm out somewhere, I'm driving somewhere, and uh, the, the smallness of my life kind of comes to me and the, the humbleness of my life comes to me. And uh, I, I sometimes, I don't always remember to do this, but I sometimes as I'm driving, then I just say, my father in heaven owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all of this. My father is king. My Lord is king. So I don't own this. I, I don't have any authority over it, but I'm intimately related to the one who does. Linda and I at times have acknowledged that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and we go to him in prayer and say, we need a barbecue. We, we, we need some help. We need some help, and he's faithful. By the way, here's a, here's a little parenthetical thing for you to meditate on. Uh, the scripture doesn't say he owns the beast in a thousand fields. It says he owns the cattle in a thousand, in a thousand fields, which or a thousand hills, which means that those human beings who think that they own them don't. We understand that the wild animals belong to God, but this is my cow. No, that belongs to God too. Uh, that, this brings us to the final covenant this morning, the new covenant which is described at length in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36. There, there's far too much there to read. We're familiar with the, the, the spiritual portion of it. I'll just read a few verses to you, starting at verse 22 in Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. 
to which you have come. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh when I prove myself holy in their sight. Now, all of that kind of builds up to, to kind of a little bit of a stomach clench. It's like, oh, the people of Israel have so offended God by, sh by acting shamefully among the nations and causing the other nations to mock him, to disregard him, to abuse his name? What's God's response? I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. Do you get this? Israel's been so disobedient. They've been stripped out of land. They've been imprisoned in other places. And even in those places, they've caused God's name to be mocked. And God's response to that is to forgive them and restore them and to cause them to be obedient. If that doesn't give you hope about your sins and about your life, I don't know what would. If God says, I'm determined to save a person, he saves them. The new covenant is a covenant of grace, not works. It is a unilateral covenant. Yahweh made the promises. He will keep the promises. It's new on many levels. It's, it's new certainly in, in the sense of forgiveness and rebirth. Sin would be forgiven. The sin nature would be surgically removed. The perfect and eternal relationship with God would be instituted. God would give sinners a new heart and a new spirit. He would put his Holy Spirit within them and cause them to walk within him, which he can do because he's sovereign. And Jeremiah says, no one will need to urge another person, know the Lord, because everybody in the new covenant knows him. By the way, this is why the children of Christians are not Christians. The children of Christians are not Christians. They have to come to Christ on their own. God has no grandchildren. We would have no need to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and evangelize them at home if they knew him. The new covenant, though, includes the promises to national Israel that have been made before this point. Israel will be restored to the land. Yahweh would never again reject her as his nation. Jerusalem would be rebuilt and never again uprooted or pulled down. The Jews would be gathered from every place and brought to Israel. The land would be fruitful and never again suffer famine. None of this has happened yet. We're waiting for the second coming of Christ to fulfill these things. I'm glad Israel came back into the land in 1948, but they've not yet been spiritually restored. The first one of those, maybe the first one of those, has roots in Israel being restored to the land after uh, close to 2,000 years. But spiritually, Israel is still in rebellion. 
But the promise of God is that at a, at a point in time, Jesus will return and every Jew on earth that, at that point will be converted. They will look on him at whom they have mourned or whom, whom they have killed and they will mourn. And then he will restore them. Well, what about Christ and the new covenant? Well, the promises of the new covenant are fulfilled in Jesus. Through Jesus, our sins are forgiven. In Jesus, uh, we are joined with him in his death and resurrection. We're given living hearts and living spirits. He has given us his Holy Spirit so that we know him and that we grow obedience. We grow in obedience to him. And one day, Jesus is going to bring about the perfect completion of the, the new covenant. Every living Jew will be restored to faith. He will never again reject Israel. He will rule the world from Jerusalem, which will never again be destroyed. And there will be an eternal state, a new creation, where nothing wicked or sinful dwells. Now, I said at the beginning of the sermon that we can compare these covenants to blueprints for a magnificent home. Those blueprints are necessary to build the home, but they can't compare with the beauty and the wonder of it. So I have a picture to show you. This is from 1935. An architect named Frank Lloyd Wright drew this up for a home in southwestern Pennsylvania to be built partially over a waterfall. The home now is called Falling Water. And here's a picture of the home. Now, which would you rather have? The blueprint? The blueprints are absolutely necessary. But the most skilled builder can only look at the blueprint and get a basic idea. It's in the incarnation of Christ, go to the next picture, it's the incarnation that we actually see what God's purpose for the covenants were, was. They're not six individual agreements. They're part of a single set of blueprints, different pages, that reveal different aspects of who Jesus would be. Jesus obeyed where Adam sinned. All who were in Adam die, all who were in Christ lived. Jesus is the ark of God, comparable to, to Noah's ark, which carries and protects God's people and saves them from his judgment against the wicked. As with Abraham, Jesus is our righteousness. We're not justified by our works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus obeyed every law given to Israel. He alone satisfied the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. And then stunningly, I, don't, I really don't get this. I know it's true, but I don't get it. God took my sins and he completely took them off of me, every last one of them, and he put them on his son, and then he took his son's righteousness and he put the full amount of his righteousness on me, all of my sins on Christ, all of Christ's righteousness on me. All, all, not most of my sins, not the big ones, all of them, all of Christ's righteousness, not just the, the good points of it, all of it, all of it is him. Jesus is the son of David whom God has placed on the eternal throne, king at birth, king throughout his life, king during his ministry, king in his suffering and death, king in his resurrection, king as we wait, to, wait him today. King for all time. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. In a few moments, we're going to share in the Lord's table this morning. Jesus said to his disciples during the Last Supper, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant. 
in my blood. What, what does that mean? It means that the new covenant was instituted at the cross of Christ, and we become beneficiaries of it when we trust in Jesus. Jesus often uses the, the picture of eating and drinking to represent what faith means. It means to take him in, to accept all of him within ourselves. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the covenants. We thank you that they, they give us a picture of Jesus in his incarnation and in his eternal ministry. But we thank you that those blueprints of the covenants were fulfilled in your son. And so, Lord, as, as with Adam and with the covenant of Israel, we hear, we hear the strictness. We hear the strictness. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he pronounces judgment on all of those who break it and teach others to do so. And Lord, we hear and we see the mercy of your salvation of Noah and his family. <coughs> of justification by faith through Abraham. Of a king coming through David. And of this incredible promise of new life, conversion, being born again, granted to us through the new covenant. And we thank you, Lord, that in Jesus, those blueprints all come together. We are still in the place of having to read words. And I think I speak, Lord, for all of us when I say we can't wait to see the return of the Lord, that we may know him as he is and be like him as he is. We thank you in Jesus' precious name.